Good evening. Welcome back to our study of 1 Corinthians 10. Tonight is the last night we're going to be doing this online only. Uh, next Wednesday, October 7th. Can you believe it's already almost October? Uh, we'll, we'll have this on campus right now. All our other uh, Wednesday night midweek activities are going on on campus tonight. We're having to skip this week because they're setting up for the fall market which is this Friday and Saturday. Reminder there, uh, drop by and help support our ladies' friendship group that uses that money to uh, give, give uh, scholarships to our high school seniors, which is a very worthy cause. So we are finishing up 1 Corinthians 10 tonight. And I just want to start with this. When my um, daughter Kaylee was a little bitty girl, one, night, one day she was playing with a cousin of hers who was around the same age. And I mean, these girls were toddler age, like barely able to talk age. And the cousin was whining and complaining about something, basically being a, a three-year-old, which, you know, that's what you expect. And Kaylee said, you know, it's not always about you in exactly that tone of voice. And I was either in the room or close by and I just lost it. I couldn't believe this adult sounding thing came from my tiny little toddler daughter, but she was very right. It's not always about you or me. So the reason I tell you that story, if you've been following along in this Bible study with us, especially the past few weeks, or if you just pick up the book of 1 Corinthians and read it for the first time, you might ask yourself when you get to chapters 8 through 10, why is Paul spending so much time talking about this subject, about food sacrificed to idols and whether it's okay to eat meat that's bought or sold in the market? And, and you might say, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, there are two reasons, I believe, why Paul takes so much time. Number one, this is a very complicated issue in his world, in, in that context of the Corinthian church. You couldn't just answer it in a sentence or even a paragraph. It took some nuance. It took some uh, it took some thought and some some eloquence, and and knowing Paul, of course, he he had to chase some theological rabbits that were very important to him as well. But secondly, it's not just about you. It's important when we read the Bible to note God did not write the Bible just for you. There are parts of the Bible that apply to us in, in ways we can see just right off the top. The, the moment we read them, we know what they mean for us. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a Sunday school teacher. You don't need a commentary to tell you what that means and how to apply it to your life. There are other parts of the Bible that we read it and we think, okay, the reason, the original reason why this was, met, was written no longer exists. It's not even an issue in our culture today. And yet, even in those cases, and this is true here, even in those cases, there are things we can learn, not just historical facts or things about Bible backgrounds, but things we can learn about who God is, how he expects us to live, and, and we can apply that to areas of our lives. So Paul is summing up this whole argument in the last section of chapter 10. It's, it's taken him three chapters to make this argument. So let's just recap really quickly. So chapter 8 began with Paul uh, repeating the question that he had gotten from the Corinthian Christians of, what do we do about eating meat that may or may not have been sacrificed to idols? In a pagan city like Corinth, when you went to the market and you bought your steak or you bought your chicken uh, or you bought your lamb or whatever, there was a pretty good chance that some of it had been sacrificed to Zeus or to Hermes or to Aphrodite or whoever you want to name. 
And, and be, besides that, there were temples all over the place. There were public events that were often held in temples the way we would hold them today in a community center or a public hall. Your pagan neighbors would invite you over to dinner. You 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 would go over there and they would lay out a, 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 a platter of meat for you. And you'd think to yourself, okay, did they previously sacrifice this to their God? And now I'm about to eat it. So this was an important issue to the Corinthian Christians, and there was a divide in the church on whether it was okay to eat or not. Paul's answer is multiple. First of all, he says, idols aren't real. Zeus is a myth. Aphrodite, Hermes, whoever you want to name, these these beings do not exist. So if someone prays a prayer over a piece of meat to the, in the name of Zeus, it doesn't change anything. That meat is still meat. Let's not, get, let's not give in to this magical thinking that something is somehow cursed, that if I eat that meat, it's going to make me sick. Uh, that's, by the way, Christians still fall prey to that kind of thinking, and it's nothing, it has nothing to do with the gospel. Paul says, since idols aren't real, you should feel free to eat whatever you want as long as you're thankful to the God who gave it to you. But then he says, but our freedom in Christ is limited by our love for our neighbor." And here's what he means by that. I'm free, he says. I'm free to eat any kind of meat I want to, but if I have a feeling that my eating that meat is going to offend a brother in my church, maybe someone who has just converted from paganism to Christianity, and now he sees me eating in the temple of Zeus, and he thinks, oh, well, I guess it's okay to worship both Zeus and Christ. That causes him to stumble. Or or if a, a, a Jewish brother, sees me eating this meat, and he gets angry with me, and it causes a division in God's church. It's not worth it. Paul says, I'd rather not eat meat at all if, if that's what's necessary to show love for my brother. And then that, that puts him, that uh, kind of launches him into uh, a discussion of, here's some of the specific ways I have given up my own rights and freedoms as a Christian and as an apostle for the sake of the gospel. I'm not married, even though I have the right to be married. I, I'm, I, I don't take a salary, even though I, even though it's actually the command of Scripture that people who serve the Lord, who, who make their living by the gospel, should be paid for it. He says, I, I forfeit that because of my particular unique kind of ministry. I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. And, and, and he says, in fact, that's my whole ministry philosophy. I am all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Whatever I do, everything I do is focused on what's going to be the best for the spreading of the gospel and the glory of God. And, and at the end of chapter 9, he says, because remember, we're in a race. We're in a race to, to serve the Lord, and we, we ought to run it with all that we have. And then in chapter 10, he transitions into, remember the stories of Israel. Remember how in the Exodus, they turned away from God and wanted to go back to Egypt. Remember how through the course of their history, they experienced times of faithlessness and ultimately lost their nation. He's saying, don't, don't fail to learn from their negative lesson. Keep your commitment to God number one in your heart. And that leads him to verse 14. Therefore, my beloved... Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So, 
his transitionary thought here is, therefore, because of everything you've seen, the mistakes that we know that Israel made, flee from idolatry. What Paul's saying is, okay, I've already told you idols don't matter, but idolatry is real. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? It sounds like a paradox. What Paul's saying is, there's no such thing as these gods you mentioned, and yet devotion to them can still be damaging to your own relationship with God and damaging to the world around us. Uh, so Paul says, so feel free to eat whatever you want to eat, but don't get involved in idol worship. Remember, he's speaking to Corinthians, some of whom used to be worshipers of these gods. He wants to make sure, he wants to make absolutely sure that they don't misinterpret his statements about Christian freedom to mean you can worship Jesus and still worship your pagan gods and, and therefore uh, stay on the good side of your, your pagan neighbors. Or like the Israelites of old, uh, try to hedge your bets and, hey, yeah, I'm going to worship Yahweh, but I'm going to have a sacrifice to Baal in my backyard too, just in case. Paul says, no, flee from idolatry. And it's interesting, that term flee is the same term he used several chapters before when he was talking about sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality, he said. I don't think it's a coincidence that idolatry and sexual immorality were two of the main sins that were common in Corinth, two of the main sins that the Corinthian Christians would have come out of in order to follow Jesus. What he's saying is, there's no room for that stuff in your life anymore now that you're a follower of Jesus. And when he talks about the cup of blessing and the bread that we break, you probably picked up on this, but he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Where does that come in here? He's going to talk about that in much more detail in another chapter, but here's where it comes in. He's saying, when you sit down in your church and you take communion with your brothers and sisters, even though it's not the actual body or the actual blood of Jesus, something real is happening there. There is communion between you and your brothers in Christ. There is a communion between you and the Lord as you remember what Christ did for you. That meal that you're eating, although symbolic, is still real. And so Paul says, if that meal is real, so is a meal that is offered in the name of any one of the pagan gods. So treat it as real. Don't make the same mistakes that the, that the Israelites made of trying to worship multiple gods. And then in verse 19, he says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? You see where he's going, right? He's already covered this ground, but he's got to say this because what if... What if somebody uh, was asleep when he said this before, and he's just heard them say, flee from idolatry? Now he has to come back and say, remember, I'm not saying that idols are real. They're not. They're false. They're myths. Uh, an idol is just a, a block of wood or stone or metal. So don't, don't give it more credence than you should. In other words, in other words, don't give prey to magical thinking. Uh, you know, uh, Christians all my life and, and on into Christian history have made Christianity into essentially a superstition. Uh, that's one of, the, one of the problems we face is we forget the gospel and we turn Christianity into a superstition where if you, if you say these words, if you eat this food, if you go to this place, if you listen to this music, then you're cursed. Uh, when I was a teenager, I can remember uh, reading Christian literature and hearing messages from Christians that made it sound like if you listen to a certain kind of music, then you're going to end up worshiping the devil. Well, that's nonsense. There's no kind of music that can capture your heart and soul and make you worship the devil. If you worship the devil, if you choose to uh, 
get involved in drug use or or premarital extramarital sex it's not the fault of the music you listen to it's it's a choice that you made in your own heart stop blaming demons for everything and yet listen to what paul says next no i imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to god i do not want you to be participants with demons you cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of demons you cannot partake of the table of the lord and the table of demons shall we provoke the lord to jealousy are we stronger than he what is he saying now he's saying idols aren't real zeus isn't real aphrodite's not real these different pagan gods you name they're all myths and yet the demons are behind it all. When you worship anything other than God, you are engaging in something that is literally demonic because it is opposed to the direction God is trying to take us. And then he says, don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. And that, that whole statement, in fact, the whole concept of the jealousy of God, which is throughout the scriptures, but very much in the Old Testament, that has bothered a lot of people. You know, especially uh, a late, you know, young ladies who have been, who have dated or been married to possessive, uh, jealous men. And they think, how can I reconcile the fact that God is jealous with the fact that I was once uh, linked to this toxic male? Is that the same thing? No, it's not the same thing. Uh, you know, a high school boy who is possessive of his girlfriend uh, needs to get his tail whipped by that girl's dad or somebody else, but the reason he's jealous is very selfish. I want her for myself and no one else. The reason God is jealous for us is out of love. He's jealous for us because he knows that if we pursue other gods, it's going to destroy us. His jealousy is more like the dad or the mom of a teenage girl or boy who is strung out on drugs. And that teenage boy or girl's parents hate that drug addiction. They hate the people who feed that drug addiction. They want whatever they have to do to get that child away from what has captured their hearts. That's the jealousy of God. God's jealousy is, I hate what idolatry does to you. And, and that brings up, well, what, what does this have to do with us? I mean, I've never bowed down to a statue in my life. I don't believe in any of these other gods. I never pray to anybody, but my, my heavenly Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not an issue for me, right? Oh, absolutely it is. In fact, I would say that every single heart has its own idols. Every single one of us has some competing God. And I think one of the, one of the best things you can do for your own spiritual growth is to identify what those competing gods are for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's money. And you just feel like, I, I cannot, I cannot have meaning in life, happiness, joy. I cannot feel identity and purpose unless I'm living according to a certain lifestyle. If that goes away, I'm history. That's really what a God is. Whatever your God is, is what you think you need to bring your life meaning and purpose, happiness, and identity. It's what you make sacrifices to. Uh, it's what you it's what you dream about. It's what you put your hope in. This is, my hope in the future is that I will have enough money to buy this or do that. It's, it's what makes you angry when it is touched. It's what, you, what, what you're most afraid of 
losing. That's your true God. So maybe for you it's money. Maybe for you it's success. Maybe for you it's status. Maybe for you it's the approval of others. If, if so-and-so is not happy with me, if so-and-so is disappointed in me, I don't think I can go on living. Maybe for you it's politics. We're coming up on an election. If right now you're thinking to yourself, if the guy I'm not voting for wins, then this country is finished. That's a pretty good sign that you're you're prey to political idolatry, that you have a political idol in your heart. My guy must win. Otherwise, I have no purpose, no meaning, no hope. Uh, maybe it's sex and romance. I must have this experience. I must have this relationship. I must fall in love, be in love, or life's not worth living. Maybe it's even something as beautiful as your own children, your own family. That can be a, definitely an idol for us when we put all our hopes, all our all our identity, all our meaning and purpose into the, the ones God has brought into our lives. We turn them from a very good thing, a blessing, into an idol that tears us away from God. So we need to examine our hearts and, as Paul says, flee from idolatry. And then he goes on. Verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he says it again. You're free to eat what you want. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What he's doing is he's giving it, he's summing this whole argument up by giving us three specific examples. And the one I just read is the example of when you're in the market, and, and you know that you and your family want to have some chicken, some lamb, some beef, go ahead and buy it. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't ask around and say, was this sacrifice to some false god? Don't worry about it because it doesn't matter. Take it home, eat it, enjoy it. Second example he gives in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Think about what Paul just said there. Second example, by the way, is if an unbelieving neighbor invites you over to his home and, and sets meat before you, Paul says, don't feel any, not even the slightest bit of guilt about eating that. But, but think about how much Paul has changed. This guy used to be a Pharisee. This guy used to be a person who not only wouldn't eat with Gentiles, he wouldn't have even eaten with most Jews because he wouldn't have considered them uh, good enough, clean enough, righteous enough. Now he's saying, your pagan neighbor invites you over to lunch or dinner, by all means, go. I mean, how else are we going to witness to our unsaved friends than if we're able to socialize with them? So don't worry about stuff. Don't let these minor technicalities get in the way of the gospel. But example number three, verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So his third example is you're at that pagan neighbor's house or you're in the temple of Aphrodite and you're enjoying a meal with as part of a festival or for whatever reason you're eating outside of Christian context and someone comes up and says, hey, by the way, that steak yesterday that was on the temple, on the altar in the temple of Zeus. Paul says you push your plate away and you say, okay, I, I can't eat it anymore. Why? Not because there's anything cursed about the meat, not because there's anything real about Zeus, but because of that other person, that person who said that to you, the people who are watching you. 
I think what Paul's envisioning here is you're in the pagan neighbor's home and they tell you this meat has been sacrificed to my God and there's a chance they're watching to see, is your commitment to Jesus real? I mean, they probably knew you when you were eating meat sacrificed to idols and worshiping the worshiping those gods. And, and so they want to know, have you really changed? But if you're able to push your plate away and say, I'm going to do without rather than indulge in something that's going to give you the opinion, the false assumption that I still worship these false gods. Paul says, it's, it's not about the meat. It's not about your stomach. It's about their soul, their conscience. So verse 31, and I guarantee you, you've heard this verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And like I said, I guarantee if you've been in church at all, you've heard that verse, do all, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And you probably didn't know that that was the summary statement of three chapters of discussion on a question that seems to us very arcane, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? That's the context, okay? So remember that next time someone quotes it to you. And yet, it still applies to us across a broad range of life because he says, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, when you're changing your child's diaper, do it to the glory of God. When you're driving to work in the morning, do it to the glory of God. When you uh, get a, an order from your boss to to do this, to fulfill this project, do it to God's glory. When you're responding to a difficult person, Maybe a customer, maybe a coworker, maybe maybe your own spouse. Do it to the glory of God. What does that mean? I mean, that's, that sounds very cliche. Do it to the glory of God. Some of us kind of chalk it up to, well, yeah, do the best you can. What it means literally is to do everything you do as an act of worship. In other words, to do everything you do knowing that God's watching you, knowing that the way I do this, the attitude with which I do this, is either going to make him happy, is either going to please him, or is going to make him say, well, you're not there yet. Here's another way to look at it. And I love this quote. You might want to write this down. This is, this is the late, great Dallas Willard. And he wrote, to glorify God means to live in such a way that when people see us, they think, thank God for God, if God should create such a life. Let me repeat that for you. You might want to write this down. To glorify God means to live in such a way that when people see us, they think, thank God for God, if God should create such a life. So to glorify God means to think of him and to think of our neighbors, to think of the gospel, not ourselves. That's what it means. And I don't know about you, but that kind of thinking doesn't come naturally to me. But thank God, the longer I dwell with him, the more I'm learning to think that way, the more he's changing me, shaping me. So I'm going to, I don't always close this in prayer, but I'm going to right now uh, pray for each of us. And you join me in that, that we would learn to think this way. Lord God, I'm so glad that we serve a, a, a Savior who put us ahead of himself. And that doesn't come naturally to any of us. Lord, we just confess to you, we need your help. Teach us, Lord, to live in such a way that everything we do, everything we think, everything we say is to your glory. Teach us to think of you and to think of others and to always, like Paul, make decisions based on what's best for the gospel, not for us. 
For it's in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So thank you. Again, I'm looking forward to seeing many of you next Wednesday in person. Those of you who uh, don't feel comfortable coming back yet, we're not going to be able to live stream anymore, but we will record these and we'll post them on our website. Uh, you can listen to them on podcasts or you can watch the video. So we still we'll, you'll still be able to participate even if you're not here in the flesh. But until then, enjoy this good fall weather. Have a great week and God bless you.